Let me begin with a serious question here. Okay, Do you suppose that a guy covered in bubble wrap could jump from a 35-foot building and survive the fall? Okay, How many of you think, yeah, this is possible, bubble wrap, 35 feet, survival? Raise your hand. Okay, How many of you think, no way, the guy would die? Okay, How many of you think this is a bizarre question with which to open an Easter sermon? Yeah, well, if you voted, if you voted yes, the guy could survive, it's probably because you saw the viral video on YouTube of a guy attempting to do this. But I, I got to tell you, the correct answer to the question is no, and I know that because Mythbusters debunked the video. So if you've ever seen Mythbusters on Discovery Channel, it's a science entertainment program, been around for 14 years. Every episode, they test some historic myth, uh, some urban legend, some video, viral video on YouTube. And, and then after they've tested it, uh, you know, they rate it. Is this, you know, is this something that, that's busted? No way could it happen. Or is it plausible? Yeah, it's possible. Or, or is it confirmed? Yeah, this probably happened. And so they tested the bubble wrap thing, fortunately not with a live guy, because they concluded if you're stupid enough to jump from a building dressed only in bubble wrap, you're going to die. Okay, it's going to be fatal. The myth was busted. Now here's a story I would love for Mythbusters to investigate, to test. Okay, guy is executed back in the first century by Roman soldiers. He's pronounced certifiably dead. They wrap him from head to foot in 75 pounds of bandages and spices, throw him in an empty cave, roll a huge stone in front of it, post a guard outside. Three days later, he comes back to life and escapes the tomb. How about that one, Mythbusters? Okay, is that, is that busted? Is it plausible? Is it confirmed? Well, welcome to Easter weekend because we are here to celebrate the confirmed resurrection of Jesus Christ. You agree? Yeah. But at Christ Community Church, we, uh, we're also launching today a five-part sermon series called I Have My Doubts. For the next five weeks beginning today, we're going to take a look at huge doubts that people have about God. Now, let me tell you what sparked this series. This past year, I, I came across a survey, recent survey, taken among, among a thousand churches, large churches around the country. And they discovered, the people who took the survey discovered, not to anybody's surprise, that in most large churches there is a significant number of people who are not convinced believers. Okay, they're, they're not Christ followers. They're, they, the survey calls them explorers. They're exploring the faith. They're investigating it. They're kicking the tires. But the biggest thing, according to the survey, that is keeping them from becoming convinced Christ followers is doubts. You know, they, they, they've got doubts. They've got doubts about God, doubts about the Bible, doubts about Jesus, doubts about the Christian faith. And so we decided to do this series, I Have My Doubts. But I want you to know up front, this series is not strictly for explorers. If you're an explorer, it's for you. But it's also for Christ followers. Because the truth of the matter is, even if you're a convinced believer, there are times when you struggle with doubt. And unfortunately, most of us, we push those doubts underground. We're, we're kind of embarrassed to admit that we're wrestling with issues. And so we don't voice the doubts out loud. We don't get answers. 
And the good news is there are answers. There, there, there are answers. Christianity does not demand that you check your brain at the door in order to follow Christ. Christianity does not demand of you a blind leap of faith. I hear people say it all the time. Well, I'm not ready to take a blind leap of faith. Well, Christianity doesn't ask you to take a blind leap. It asks you to put a reasonable faith in God. Reasonable. Today what we're going to discover is that there are good reasons, there's evidence for the resurrection of God's Son. So that's our topic for today, obviously, because it's Easter. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 24? We're going to take a look at the scripture that was read earlier in our worship service today. So Luke chapter 24. And as you're turning, as you're finding it in your your Bible, just a little bit of background. The guy who wrote it uh, was called Luke. He was a medical doctor in the first century, so he was a smart guy, an educated man. He set out to write a biography of Jesus. And he did it by investigating, by asking questions of eyewitnesses, people who had seen Jesus do certain things, people who had heard Jesus teach. So he's setting out to write an historic account of the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This this is not fanciful legend. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read to you this account, an account, by the way, that even historians and archaeologists say when Luke in his gospel, when he names people and places and events, he's accurate 100% of the time. That's what the experts say about Luke's gospel. So let me read to you his account, his description of Jesus' resurrection, and then we're going to launch into three irrefutable evidences in support of the resurrection. Okay, if you haven't taken the outline from your program, you might want to take that out because you're going to want to write these down, both for the sake of yourself, any doubts you wrestle with, but as well for the doubts of others that you run into. Verse 1 of Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the, the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Three irrefutable evidences in support of the resurrection because Christianity is a reasonable faith. Here's number one, the empty tomb. Okay, the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday morning. You find that mentioned twice in the text I just read to you. If the Bible's still open on your lap, look at verse 3. The women enter the tomb, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You drop down to verse 6, at this point they've seen two dudes dressed in gleaming white clothes, bright as lightning, angels, and they announce to the women, he is not here, he's not here, he has risen. 
What, what's interesting is that down through the, uh, the centuries, uh, even skeptics of Christianity, even enemies of Christianity, have had to admit the tomb was empty. There was no body in the tomb, and so instead of trying to deny it, which is impossible to do, what the skeptics do is, is, is they question the reason why the tomb was empty. They come up with explanations. So let me give you three of the more, most popular explanations. One, one explanation is the women went to the wrong tomb. I mean, you know how women are when it comes to directions. And, you know. About half of you didn't like that one. Yeah, yeah. But seriously, they said, these ladies were distraught. Okay, they were overcome with sorrow. There were tears in their eyes. They couldn't see where they were going. They went to the wrong tomb. They found it to be empty. And so they, they proclaimed mistakenly that Christ had risen from the dead. You buy that? See, I think it sounds kind of foolish because if they'd gone to the wrong tomb, why didn't the enemies of Jesus... The religious leaders, the Romans who had put him to death, why didn't they go to the right tomb, exhume the body, and parade it around Jerusalem? Myth busted. Okay. So how else do you explain the empty tomb? Explanation number two. Well, Jesus wasn't really dead when they took him off the cross. When they put him in the tomb, he had merely swooned. And then in the cool air of the tomb, he was revived. This theory, by the way, actually has a name. They call it the swoon theory. And if it sounds ridiculous to you, you need to know that entire books have been written in support of this theory. One became a bestseller. Okay, it was called The Passover Plot, written by a guy named Hugh Schofield back in the, the mid-60s. It was made into a movie in the mid-70s. Okay, Jesus just swooned came back to life in the tomb. I say, right. So here he was put to death by Roman soldiers who were professional executioners. I mean, when they were done with you, you were dead. They pronounced him dead. And then some people wrapped him head to toe, 75 pounds of spices. They mummified him. They tossed him in a cave, they rolled this ginormous rock in front of it and posted a guard. But we're to believe that Jesus was revived in the cave, escaped the mummy wrap, pushed back the giant stone by himself, snuck by the guards, and then appeared to his disciples so full of life that he managed to convince them he was victor over death. Yeah, that's believable. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't buy the swoon theory. Explanation number three. Jesus' disciples stole the body while the guards were asleep. And then later they proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, interestingly, according to Matthew's biography in the New Testament, you could look this up for yourself. It's in Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. This is exactly what Jesus' enemies claimed when they discovered the empty tomb the first Easter. You've got to love this explanation. Jesus' disciples stole the body while the guards were asleep. In fact, that's what the guards claimed. We were asleep, and the disciples stole the body. Okay, dudes, if you were asleep, how do you know the disciples stole the body, right? Hello. <laughs> See, I remember years ago, before I pastored Christ Community, I was in a, a small church on the East Coast, and I had a cranky guy in that congregation. And One day he wagged his finger in my face, and he said, Today, when you led in prayer, you prayed with your eyes open. Yeah, you know what I wanted to say, bit my tongue, but you know, dude, how did you know I had my eyes open, right? So, how did the guards who were asleep know it was the disciples? 
But I have a serious objection to this explanation as well. See, I happen to know that all of the disciples, save one, went to death for their faith in a risen Christ. They were martyred. The last guy wasn't martyred, but he was exiled to an island. People die for a worthy cause, but people don't die for something they know to be a lie. If they had stolen the body, they knew it to be a lie. I doubt very seriously whether they would have gone to their death for this lie. Jesus rose from the dead. The, The empty tomb argues for his resurrection. Here's the second evidence. Eyewitness accounts. Okay, now I've already said to you that uh, Luke's gospel is a reliable historical document. It was written in close proximity to the events it records. And Luke's gospel says, as I read to you, that a group of women were eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. Well, I'd like you to turn now, if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to another New Testament book. Go to the right from Luke until you get to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read about some more eyewitnesses who not only saw an empty tomb, they claim to have seen the risen Christ. Okay, 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written about 20 years after Jesus' death and supposed resurrection. So let's see what Paul says about Jesus' resurrection. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 3. Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is the Aramaic name, by the way, for Peter. So he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Jesus resurrection had eyewitnesses. He was raised from the dead and seen by, according to this passage, Peter, the other disciples, even a crowd of 500 at one time. Eyewitnesses are hard evidence for the resurrection. And by, by the way, eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts are how, how we verify any historical event. Okay, no matter the historical event, you, you can't put it in a science lab and put it to the test. Okay, Mythbusters can't, can't do that. What, what you've got to do is look for eyewitnesses. So for, for example, I happen to know that in 1908, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, as unbelievable as that is. You know, as difficult as it is for me to imagine my Cubbies winning a World Series, I know for a fact it happened, not because it was tested as a science experiment. You can't do that but because there were eyewitnesses who swear that it really happened. Well, Jesus' resurrection had eyewitnesses. So how do the skeptics explain away the eyewitnesses? Again, let me give you three popular explanations. First, wish fulfillment. Wish fulfillment. Jesus' followers wanted him back so badly that they actually imagined him to have returned from the dead. Well, if you know anything about the resurrection story... You know that Jesus' disciples were not hoping to get him back after the crucifixion. In fact, they were devastated. They they, they were cowering in secret hiding places. They were certain that everything they had put their, their faith in was over. It was done. It was finished. In fact, when Jesus did appear to them, he had a hard time convincing them that it was him. You know, he had to show them the 
nail holes in his hands. He had to go back to some scriptures that had prophesied his resurrection from the dead and help them understand this is, this is what God said would happen. There was no wish fulfillment going on. Second explanation. It's somewhat similar to the last one. Hallucination. You know, Jesus' followers thought they saw the risen Christ, but it was an illusion. It was a ghost. It was a hallucination. A couple of objections, obvious objections, I think, to this explanation. The first is people don't have hallucinations in groups. Okay, if you have a, a hallucination, you have it on your own. It's kind of like dreams. All right, you, you know, you don't have a, a, a dream in a group. If you go to work, if you go to school this week and your friend says to you, hey, it was a really cool dream we had last night, eh? <laughs> you know, your friend is either messing with you or whacked out. Okay, hallucinations don't happen, and yet Paul says over 500 people saw him at one time. They saw him as a group. The second objection I have to this hallucination explanation is that when the Bible records Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, 12 different places in Scripture you'll read about him, in six of those, half of them, Jesus does something physical. Jesus invites followers to touch him, or he picks up a piece of fish and eats it. It's his way of saying, this is no ghost, this is no vision, this is no hallucination. I'm really here. Explanation number three. Well, the eyewitness accounts, they're part of a legend that grew up after Jesus' death and supposed resurrection. You know how legends get built up. You know, somebody tells a story, the next person who's heard it, they exaggerate the story as they retell it, and it gets passed on from generation to generation, and over a hundred years or so, a legend grows up. You know, you could just ask Mr. Williams of NBC about that, right? Brian Williams? See, a short time for his legend to grow up about having... Uh, been a reporter in the Iraqi war, and they fired at his helicopter. I mean, no, Brian. So is this what happened to Christianity, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Like maybe three days after his crucifixion, one of his disciples had been walking the streets of, of Jerusalem and a couple of blocks away, seen somebody who kind of looked like Jesus. So he told one of the other disciples, and the other, other disciple repeated it and said, you know, Peter, he saw Jesus. And pretty soon, after the story's retold a dozen times, it's now all 12 disciples have seen him. And the story's retold and retold, and a hundred years later, when it's finally recorded in the Bible, 500 people saw Jesus at one time. It's become a legend. Several difficulties with that explanation. One is, uh, 1 Corinthians, as I, I told you a few moments ago, was written 20 years after Jesus' death. Hardly enough time for a legend of this proportion to come into being. You know, th th this would be like me claiming that somebody who died uh, 20 years ago, mid-90s, uh, Mickey Mantle, 1995. I know that because I was a Yankees fan for years. He was a hero of mine. But suppose I said to you today, you know, Mickey came back from the dead. In fact, over 500 fans saw him. You know that, right? <laughs> I don't think so. Too short a time for a legend of this proportion to have developed. 
Here's another reason I don't like the explanation of, of legend. It was women who saw Jesus first, the eyewitnesses who saw the empty tomb in Luke 24. In another gospel, we read that, that Jesus' first appearance was to a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now, what's strange about this, friends, is that in first century Jewish culture, women were considered to be untrustworthy witnesses. They were not allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law because you can't believe a woman. And so if I were inventing a legend about Christ's resurrection, I wouldn't even bother to mention women. That's not good evidence. Just the opposite. Here's another reason I think the legend explanation doesn't hold water. In 1 Corinthians 15, as I read to you a few moments ago, after Paul says that 500 people saw Jesus at once, he goes on to say, and most of them are still alive. Okay? In other words, if you don't believe me, check it out with them. They'll verify it. You know, it'd be like us saying today, if you don't believe me, Google it. Okay? You'll, you'll, you'll find it's true. What's the evidence for Jesus resurrection. Number one, it's the empty tomb. Number two, it's eyewitness accounts. Number three, it's the transformation of skeptics. The transformation of skeptics. Let me give you three examples of what I'm talking about here. In 1 Corinthians 15.5, which I read to you a few minutes ago, Paul says that Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the 12 disciples. One of those guys was a dude named Thomas. We know him by his nickname. He was called yeah, Doubting Thomas. You know how he got that nickname. Okay, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples after his death, Thomas wasn't with the group. And so later on, they told Thomas, you're not going to believe this. Jesus came back from the dead. And Thomas said, you're right, I don't believe it. In fact, I won't believe it unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I'm able to take my fingers and put them into the holes in his hands. What transformed Thomas. He was a hardened skeptic. What made him into a believer? It had to be the appearance, as Paul records, of Jesus to the disciples post-resurrection, to Thomas. And when I say Thomas was transformed, I mean it in capital letters, transformed, because we learn from tradition that Thomas later took the good news of the risen Christ all the way to India, where he was martyred for his faith. He was run through with a spear because he believed in the risen Christ. Well, once again, let me say, if your objection is, well, you, you know, people can believe in something, they could die for something, and it not be true. Yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, a suicide bomber can give his life because he believes in Muhammad and what Muhammad taught, hoping that it's true. But this is something entirely different. If Thomas hadn't seen the risen Christ, if he knew it to be a lie, he was not dying because he hoped it, it, it to be true. He was dying for something he knew to be bogus. He was dying for a lie. People don't die for lies. Let me give you another example of a skeptic who was transformed. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. We read as far as verse 6. Let me have you pick it up. Verse 7, then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, why would, why would Paul distinguish James from the rest of the apostles? Well, it's because he's not talking about the Apostle James. There was a disciple named James, but that's not who Paul is, is talking about here. He's talking about Jesus' half-brother. After Jesus uh, 
was born in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph had other kids, one of them named James. Now what you need to know is that during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, his brothers, his half-brothers, didn't believe in him. In fact, they ridiculed him. John records, John chapter 7, on one occasion Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for a religious festival and his brothers say, hey, yeah, go for it. Show them some miracles. Razzle-dazzle the crowd. You know, give them your stuff. It was sarcastic because they didn't believe, John records. Didn't believe right up to the point of Jesus' death. So what transforms James? Because what we know about James is James later became the leader of the believers in Jerusalem. This movement, this Christian movement launched in Jerusalem is being led by James, half-brother of Jesus, one-time hardened skeptic. What changed? He saw the risen Christ. And I wish I could have been there on that occasion. You know, when Jesus says, hey, bro... It's me. Hardened skeptics. Let me give you one last example of transformation. The Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't one of Jesus' original disciples. He didn't become a a Christ follower for a number of years after Jesus passed from the scene. In fact, Paul was a devout Jew. He persecuted Christ followers because he considered them to be a cult. Okay, They were blaspheming God by encouraging people to worship Jesus. But something transformed Paul. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5 one last time. Pick it up in verse 8 where we left off. Last of all, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What happened to Paul? Paul met the risen Christ. You could read a story for yourself. It's recorded in the New Testament book of Acts. In fact, it's recorded three times in the book of Acts. You know, Paul is on his way to the city of Damascus. He wants to round up a group of Christ followers and throw them in jail. And along the way, he meets the risen Christ and it changes everything. And suddenly, Paul the persecutor becomes Paul the propagator of this new faith. Christianity's first missionary who takes the gospel, the good news of the risen Christ to most of the then known world. How do you account for a Thomas, a James, a Paul, transformed skeptics? How do you account for their transformation other than the fact that they had met the risen Christ? And if I had the time, I would love to move from the ancient world to the contemporary world, and I could introduce you to people right here at Christ Community Church who would tell you that their lives have been transformed by a relationship with the living Christ. They they would tell you that there is no other explanation for how their broken marriages were restored or how some addiction was vanquished or how garden variety selfishness in their life has been replaced by generosity and now they love to give and they love to serve. And every year we baptize hundreds of new Christ followers at Christ Community Church. Every one of their stories of personal transformation is posted online for anybody to read. See, transformed lives are powerful evidence in support of the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and people are still encountering him today. In fact, in just a a few moments, when I I, I wrap things up, I'm going to be inviting you to meet Jesus. I, I mean really, really meet the risen Christ. To, to allow Jesus to begin the transformation process in you from the inside out. 
But, but before we go there, I want to return to the topic with which I began the sermon, the topic of doubts. Because the reason some of you have never surrendered your life to Jesus is because of doubts. You've got doubts about God and Jesus and the Bible and, and, and so on. Now, I want to ask you, where, where do those doubts come from? Let, let me scroll through th four possible sources of, of doubts and see if you could put a finger on where they come from in your life. Okay. One, one source of doubts is that they come from honest questions we have. You know, you, you've, you've got honest questions about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, about the Christian faith. You want answers. And, and I would say if, you're, if your questions are sincere, great, because we've got answers. And I would invite you to come back the next four weeks of this I Have My Doubts series as we tackle some of those difficult questions. Lee Strobel, whose story you heard on video before the sermon, Lee was a convinced atheist. Lee's background was in law and journalism. So when his wife became a Christ follower, Lee, who at the time was the legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune, he set out to debunk his wife's faith, to rescue her from this cult she'd gotten herself into. And so he dug into the questions he had. He dug for answers. He filled one legal page after another with notes. And, and when he concluded his search 20 months, 21 months later, he surrendered his life to Christ. You know, Lee told me, Lee's a friend of mine, Lee, Lee told me, he said, you know, when, when I surrendered to Christ, it wasn't like a lot of people say that they had a rush of emotion when they surrendered to Christ. He said, for me, it was a rush of reason. If you, if you got honest questions, there are reasonable answers if you really want. And so I, in, I invite you back to the series. He, here's another reason I think some people have doubts. Source number two, disappointment with God. You know, many people have a hard time believing in the God of the Bible because he has let them down at some point in their life. You know, there, there, there was something that they, they prayed earnestly about and God didn't seem to answer. Now, how can you believe in a God like that? Dr. Gary Habermas is a Bible scholar. He actually has spent a lot of time researching the resurrection of Jesus, wrote a book on it, wrote a book on it. But a number of years back, his wife was dying of cancer. It was stomach cancer. It was slow and painful. And at the time, a friend said to him, is there any question you'd like to ask God about now? And Dr. Habermas thought about it, and he said, yeah, I'd like to ask God, why is Debbie dying? And then he paused, and he said, but I know what God would say. God would ask me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And he said, I, I would say to God, I would say, of course you did. I wrote a book on it. <laughs> but I still want to know, why is Debbie dying? And he says, I think all God would do is repeat his question. I think he would say to me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And suddenly I'd get it. That because Jesus has come back from the dead, anything's possible. That Debbie's death is not final. That there is hope beyond the grave. You know, if you've wrestled with disappointment with God a couple of weeks from now, we're, we're going to deal with this issue. Why, why does bad stuff happen to people? Why does a good God allow bad stuff to happen? Here's a third source of doubt. And again, maybe this is you. You know, I've discovered in talking to people that sometimes doubts are a smokescreen for a rebellious lifestyle. 
Okay, Lee Strobel started to investigate a relationship with Christ, but he found all sorts of things to disagree with until finally one day his wife said to him, Lee, are, are you poking holes in Christianity because you truly believe it's an illusion, or are you poking holes in Christianity because you don't want it to be true? And I love Lee's response. Let, let me read it to you. He said, that stung. Admittedly, I had a lot of motivations to find false with Christianity. I knew that my hard-drinking, immoral, and self-obsessed lifestyle would have to change. It'd have to change if I ever became a follower of Jesus. And I wasn't sure I wanted to let go of that. After all, it was all I knew. So consequently, instead of trying to find the truth, I found myself attempting to fend off the truth with fabricated doubts and contrived objections. Did you get that? See, if Christianity is true, if Jesus came back from the dead and was proclaimed king of all kings, his kingship has implications for your life. He's not going to let you off the hook. He expects you to allow him to be the king of your life. And if you don't want that, if you don't want a king, if you want to stay on the throne, master of your own fate, then you, you may work up some doubts about God and the Bible and Jesus and whatever, and it may all be a smokescreen for the fact that you don't want to submit to the risen king. Here's a fourth source of doubt. It's fear of commitment. You know, we live in a day when people, they just don't want to commit a long time to anything, right? You know, don't want to be in a job for longer than two or three years. If the marriage doesn't work out, they want to opt out. You know, they're, they're certainly not going to make a commitment to Jesus. And I want, I want to say to you, if that's your struggle, you, you fear committing your life, letting go, committing your life to Christ, I want to describe to you how Jesus has committed himself to you. Jesus has committed himself to you. See, we've all got a serious problem. The Bible calls it sin. You know, all those wrong things that we think and we say and we do, we need to understand they, they don't only lead to negative repercussions in this life. You know, we find ourselves in deep weeds when we do wrong things. But worse than that, according to the Bible, our sin alienates us from a perfectly holy God. Our sin pushes him away. When we go our way, which we do every day instead of God's way, what we're doing is we're disconnecting from God who happens to be the source of life. And when you disconnect from the source of life, what happens? You die. Which is why the Bible says the penalty, the wages of sin is death. You die physically means your relationship with God is broken. You die physically at the end of this life, you're going to die. It means if it's not fixed in this life, this problem of death is not fixed. You go into eternity separated from God. It's eternal death. Now, God couldn't stand for that. And so in love, he sent this world a savior. He sent this world his son. And when Jesus came to planet earth, it was for one primary reason. It was to die your death. It was to give his life on the cross, a sacrifice of infinite worth, paying the penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven. And not only that, his resurrection from the dead means that Jesus and Jesus alone has the power today to reconnect you with the God who is the source of life. Today, surrendering your life to Jesus could be the beginning of a transformed life. It starts the minute you put your hope and your trust in him.
So the easiest way to get over the fear of commitment is just do it. Is just surrender your life to Christ. In fact, I'm going to ask you, would you bow together with me in prayer right now? I'm going to ask you across the four campuses in Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb. Would you bow your heads with me? If you've never surrendered to Christ, it's something that doesn't happen by osmosis. You, you don't back into it. It requires a conscious, deliberate decision. It requires you surrendering. And the easiest, most straightforward way to do that is in, in prayer. And so I'm going to give you a prayer. I'm going to pray the prayer a line at a time. If this is something you mean from your heart, I want you to pray this from your heart. Now, the prayer doesn't mean a thing if you're, you're not praying sincerely, but if you are, this is the beginning of a relationship with Christ for you. Pray something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. And God, I'm sorry for my sins because I realize they've separated me from you, the source of life. And at this point, if I could interrupt my prayer as you're bowed before God, it might be good to call to mind your favorite sins because we all got favorites. Those are the things that have separated you from a holy God. Just name them in your heart. What are you guilty of? And God, I want to acknowledge today that Jesus' death on the cross was the death I deserved to die. But I accept the fact that he died in my place. Today, I put my trust in Jesus as my substitute, as my Savior. I ask you to forgive my sins. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, I want him to reconnect me with you. I want the new life that Christ offers. I want Jesus to be the king of my life. Right now, and I mean this from my heart, I get off the throne of my life and I turn it over to King Jesus. I want to learn what it means to follow him. Now, while your head is still bad, your eyes are closed, I want to ask you to do something uh, physically because you've just made a spiritual decision and spiritual decisions can't be seen. In fact, tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and you're going you're to wonder, did I really do that in that auditorium at one of the four campuses of Christ Community Church or did I just imagine that I did it? And so to seal the deal, here's what I want you to do. If you just prayed that prayer of surrender from your heart, to the best of your knowledge, that's the first time you've prayed a prayer like that and genuinely meant it, what I want you to do is stand to your feet for one second and then sit back down. That's just a way of saying, yet this was not an illusion. I genuinely meant the prayer I just prayed. So in St. Charles, okay, I see you standing already. In the balcony of St. Charles on the main floor, in Bartlett, in Blackberry Creek, I see you. Keep going. In DeKalb, okay, across our four campuses. Just stand for a moment. I prayed this prayer of surrender. I meant this from my heart, and then sit back down. Keep going. Okay, you know if God's prompting you, saying, yeah, Easter 2015. This is going to be a watershed date in my life when I surrender my life to Christ. Keep going. Anybody else? Let me pray for you. God, I, I just want to pray that the decisions we've made from our hearts, you would confirm. I pray for, for those of us who we felt something going on inside, like maybe I should be doing this, but we just couldn't bring ourselves to stand. 
God, I want to pray that even before the day's out, at least before the week's out, we would surrender to, to King Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.